0: Hello, and welcome back to the Cogar Center Arts Roundup podcast. This week we have three special guests. Our guests are all runners-up from the Cogar Center's 1593 project that we launched during the COVID-19 lockdown to inspire artists to continue to create during the time of uncertainty. We had almost 60 submissions ranging from visual art to orchestral pieces, and everything in between. Our guests today are Bob Jolly, who submitted two paintings, Janet Swagler with her quilt submission, and Jesse Quails, whose submission was a four-minute animated film. We will talk to each of them about their history with their art form, in-depth about their submissions, and if you'd like to follow along while viewing their submissions, you can find the pieces online at kogercenterforthearts.com. I'm excited to be talking to Bob Jolly, who is one of the runners-up from the 1593 project, uh, art project here at the Koger Center for the Arts. Uh, Bob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started as a painter?
1: Well, I started as a child, really. My mother sent me to art school at the High Museum of School of Art in Atlanta, and so I began my art training there. As when I grew up, I attended the University of Georgia and uh, received three degrees in art at the University of Georgia. I am retired from the University of Tennessee at Martin, where I was an art teacher. I am now uh, an emeritus professor of art from that institution.
0: Can you tell us, you got three degrees from the University of Georgia, Can you tell us more about them and and what more specifically did you study? Uh, Did you study um, painting in particular or um, as you went through the degrees, did you specialize?
1: Well, I received a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in drawing and painting. uh, And I am a painter and have been all my life. Uh, I went on to receive my master's degree in both painting and art history, and then I went on and received a Ph.D. degree in art theory and criticism. Uh, I have been a, a college teacher of art, a university teacher of art, and retired from the University of Tennessee at Martin.
0: What kinds of classes did you teach there?
1: I taught just about everything at one time or another. Uh, I concentrated on art history and painting, but I did teach drawing, design. I even taught a couple of courses in sculpture, though I'm no sculptor. Over my years, I've probably taught just about every phase of art at one time or another, but I'm primarily a painter.
0: What's your favorite thing to teach? Uh, you've taught all of these different kinds of classes. Do you have a favorite uh, that you look forward to every semester?
1: Well, I was sort of divided between art history and painting. Those are the two areas where I've spent most of my time and which I enjoy a great deal.
0: All right, well, let's focus on the pieces that you submitted for the competition. You submitted two two acrylic paintings. They're of a fairly large size. You've got a style, I'm not a visual art Uh, critic by any stretch, but you've got a style that jumps really right out at a person. Um, Can you talk about your history uh, as a painter? And it seems like lots of painters go through many different phases uh, of painting. How would you describe the style of the pieces that you submitted to us? And then um, can you talk about, have you always painted in this style?
1: Well, no, I don't always paint in one style. I guess I'm sort of uh, wishy-washy in a way, because I, I go from this sort of style in those paintings to sometimes something that is more, I guess you would call, abstract. But as regard those paintings you have there, uh, one titled "Mother of Sorrows." I was hiking in the mountains of North Carolina one day, and I came upon this uh, back up in the mountains, a uh, very small, uh, cabin-like place, and there was a, a woman there with many children around, and I started thinking of how the difficult situation she must live in. I began to empathize with that, and so I, I you know, I observe and then I interpret, uh, and that's what I've done there. And sometimes that calls for a little bit of improvisation, like for instance, the woman is a bit caricatured. I did that because I thought it would stress more this difficulty of her life. You may notice in there that she has a black eye and there's a man off to her side. I, I thought by that to suggest something that we know of as domestic violence that she might possibly uh, endure. And so I began to empathize with it. So, and uh, I thought maybe through this means I could say something of the uh, pathos that that woman, uh, you know, regarding my empathy into that woman's possible life. I don't know exactly what her life would have been. but I began to imagine it. And that's one of the things I think about painting. It's it's a way to probe uh, a person's imagination. So I took what I saw and then what I, uh, through imagination, interpreted with a bit of improvisation. And I would say that would be true for both of those paintings.
0: So the mother of sorrows. Did you take any photographs? Do any sketches when when you were on this hike, or is did this come completely from your memory
1: uh, of I having seen complete, it? Com- completely from memory. No, and then- no, I did not take any photographs. Now the other one, the body politic. I that did I did take a parag- uh, a photograph of of a similar situation, and then I. Like I say, I observed it, and then I interpreted it. And that interpretation involved some improvisation. Like, for instance, the man you see there, uh, I actually did photograph a man like that. And uh, the beer barrel you see there, I, I did have that in the photograph. The rest of it is something I added into from my imagination. Are these new works?
0: When did you paint the two of these?
1: Well. I painted them over a long period of time. I first painted them back in about 1990, and then uh, pulled them back out and decided that I wanted to make some changes. It, and I made those changes this year. So, uh, like, for instance, I, I changed the uh, woman's standing with her back to us in the body politics. Then in the uh, mother saw the 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 young woman leaning against the post. I changed her. I changed something at the top of the painting. So I I made changes in it, and they are changes that I did this year in paintings that were originally done uh, several years ago.
0: I notice in uh, the body politic that in the bottom right-hand corner it seems to be a disposable mask laying on the on the floor. Is that yes. a, an addition?
1: That is an addition, yes. Uh, I began to think about all the controversy we're going through now regarding the wearing of a mask in treatment of the COVID-19, and so I put that in. That's, a, that's an addition that we put in this year.
0: So did you, how did you make the decision or how did it, the, the idea come to you to pull out these particular paintings or is this a usual part of your process that you would look through older work and uh, something would speak to you and you would decide to make new additions?
1: Oh, I do that often. I often turn back to work that I did uh, years ago and uh, I look at it and, then, and I try to make it relevant to this age in which I'm living. and. That sometimes requires taking things out or sometimes requires adding things in. In this case, they were adding things into it to make it more relevant to the social situation. These are things I do that I hope to have some sort of social relevance. And uh, I have many of my old paintings which I focused in almost exclusively on social relevance and... uh, I pull them out and uh, look at them and I say, well, what, how do they pertain to today's world? And I see certain things I could do or change to make it more relevant to today, and so I do that. <laughs> the,
0: these paintings are relatively large in size, From in, in, in my opinion. Uh, do you focus mostly on a particular size of painting, or, or do you do a variety of canvas sizes when you paint?
1: Well, I do a variety of canvas sizes, but I much prefer a canvas that's somewhere around 50 to 60 inches by 48 inches. It's just something about that size I feel like I can relate to more. I can get into it more than I can uh, other sizes. Uh, I don't really think of them as all that large when you look at paintings in, say, the Museum of Modern Art or something like that, which are much, much larger. So I suppose they do seem large to some people. I don't think of them as being that large.
0: Do you have a studio that you work in? Uh, is I, it home at one, one particular place, or do, you, or do you sort of move about and paint wherever, uh, wherever you are?
1: No, I have a nice studio in my house. I, I work in my house. I, I live alone now. My wife passed away, so I, I live alone. And I sp- so spread out through the house. And, uh, this is my studio.
0: <laughs> do you work on how, how many paintings would you be working on at any given time?
1: Oh, four or five at least. And when you
0: make uh, updates and changes to them, do you do you keep a photographic record of of their progress over the years?
1: Yes, I do. I make photographs of them, and then my son uh, creates computer files with them.
0: With Mother of Sorrows, you were struck by the sort of chance encounter um, on this hike. How do you normally find uh, inspiration for you know subject matter for a painting? Um, is it through is it through that kind of chance encounter, or or do you think about things that you would like to do and then go find? a you know inspiration
1: well uh, it's sometimes it's a chance encounter such as that one was uh there are times when i observe very aspects about life and these things make an impression on me it may be a satirical type thing sometimes uh it may be a very emotional type thing sometimes it, it could be strictly a social conviction about certain social issues there's no uh, definite sort of path I follow I guess it's one could say the momentary inspirations that uh, hit me and then I like I say I, I observe I interpret and I improvise and, and that's uh, sort of the basic ideas of what I do
0: Well, we're very excited to hopefully host uh, these couple of paintings that you submitted at the Cogar Center. Uh, Once we're more open to the public, people can come. Uh, I think people would love the opportunity to see them in person rather than just the digital representations that we get uh, on the internet. Um, Can you talk just briefly about how you chose these two pieces to submit for this competition?
1: So I, I don't know. Something came over the internet. And something in the the message led me to think that maybe these two paintings might be uh, appropriate for that sort of endeavor. Uh, like I say, I don't remember exactly now what the email message was, but somehow there was something in it that made me think that maybe I could submit these paintings. And,
0: uh... Well, we're delighted to have got to see these paintings. And um, if people would like to see more of your work, do you have... Uh a way for people to find you um, on the internet? Do you have uh, digital pictures of your work available for people to see anywhere?
1: Well, yes, I have, uh, like I say, my son has created files of my paintings, and so I would be happy to share them with anyone who would like to see them. I was just gonna say that I'm not real skilled with the use of the computer, but uh, my son is, and so, uh, Anyone who wanted to contact us, I'd get him to sort of open up the files. It would be.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about yourself or
1: your painting? Well, I think of myself as a painter-writer. And so I, I paint and I write. And those are the two things that sort of consume me. And uh, as I say, I'm retired, so fill up my time doing those two things.
0: Does your painting? Do you ever illustrate your writing?
1: If you've got something, do you ever
0: think I'd really like to get visual representation of the thoughts that are in the writing, and you do a particular piece of artwork to accompany it?
1: No, no, I've never done that. Uh, I, I don't know. I just do it because I enjoy it.
0: <laughs> well, I'd love to. I'd love to read a short story of yours uh, about these pieces. You know, uh, where you, where the. The people and the pieces come to life as characters in the story. They really are well thought out, unique people. uh, As I look at the paintings, I can create uh, my own storyline. So I would love to one day read uh, a story with the characters as you see them in your head, uh, sort of telling a story of their life. So if you you ever do that, please uh, share it with us.
1: Well, I'd love to do that. We'll see how that develops.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We, we loved getting to know you here uh, on the phone call, but loved to getting to know you and your artwork through uh, these couple of paintings. And we look forward to meeting you at some point in person and, and uh, hosting these paintings live at the Coger Center for everyone to see.
1: Well, I'm certainly honored to have that opportunity and uh, I appreciate your time to talk with me.
0: Well, we'll look forward to meeting you in person sometime. Thank you so much.
1: Great, thank you.
0: I'm excited to be talking to Janet Swigler. She's one of the runners up of the Coker Center for the Arts 1593 project. Janet, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, you're certainly welcome, thank you. Uh, Let's get started. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got into quilting. The piece that you submitted to the competition was a beautiful quilt. And I think that in my mind, when I was growing up, a quilt was a thing that you put on the bed in the winter. But uh, as I've grown up, I realized that uh, quilting is an amazing art form that has a huge history. Um, so I, I'm really excited to get some information from you about quilting and how you got into it and, and all the details involved in a piece like yours. So uh, t- start by telling us just a little bit about yourself.
2: Yes, I thought about this interview, I realized that I started sewing and also started my art training, but it was a performing art in piano when I was about eight years old. And so those two really have gone hand in hand throughout my life. I had a career in music. Uh, Sewing was always uh, I'd say more of a craft. I was, I was making clothes, making useful items, making the bed quilts, and then I started moving into art a little bit using applique, which means a piece is put on top of a piece of fabric, and it can be turned into a quilt, but I really liked the idea of a quilt where the seams are joined together, uh, and I kept studying one person's literature, and a friend said, oh, Nancy Crow." teaches quilting. Well, to me, she is the epitome of art quilting. About 30 years ago, she changed the course and started to turn quilts into an art form. So I got to start studying with her in 2014, immediately after I retired from a career in music. So that study with her in Ohio, I make a couple trips a year up there to her classes, is my visual art education, where I worked with proportion, value, line, uh, shapes, color. And as I've taken the time over the last couple of years to think about my training in music, I realized the similarities between the two. Repetition, crescendo, decrescendo, legato, staccato, tone color, form, shape. So sort of the volume of the music and the volume of color. So there's a lot of parallels that are revealing themselves, though I rarely will um, turn a piece of music literally into a quilt.
0: So you retired from music education and you're a piano player. Can you tell us just a little more briefly about uh, that part of your life?
2: My main focus was teaching elementary school music. So um, back in high school, my piano teacher said, well, you're not good enough to be on the stage, Janet, but you'd make a great music teacher. And so that was the beginning of that career. And I found out that I loved working with smaller children. I tried middle school and high school, but elementary school age and preschool music was what I really loved. And I wanted the children to hear their music, not just somebody else's music. And I wanted them to make their music. I also wanted them to embody the music making. So we were very hands-on, whether it was playing instruments, singing, performing somehow. And I think now, how in the world would I teach music classes with the restrictions that are being put on during this time of the, the COVID?
0: Yes, it's all, all very difficult right now, everything is very difficult right now. We are experiencing um, an overflow from the School of Music into the Cobra Center for the Arts, because when you at one point you could put a symphony class of 80 students in the same room, and now you have to split that up into five or six different locations. Ah. So you've Got students throughout the building meeting socially distant um, but so that they can try to be in the same place and play music together at the same time, um, at least some of the time. Wow. So yes, it is a interesting time out there. Um, do you have any other, uh, you jumped into um, quilting from an obvious background in sewing, do you have any other art training or, or even as a hobby, painting, drawing, or is quilting really the thing that you have focused on?
2: I've always liked to sketch. And um, I've always liked coloring. I've always just loved color. So, and I think that might show up in my gardening. Um, So that's, I feel like that's one of my visual art forms also. I remember when I lived in Japan as a child, I did take some watercolor classes. Um, I've tried calligraphy, but that was just a little too um, restrained for me. So I'm finding that I really like making these bigger movements that come with these bigger pieces. I'm making so it's really just been sketching kind of doodling around Uh, but I never went into oils pastels or anything um, anything else like that so I think the the sewing the literal fabric and thread and needle are really the most satisfying way to express myself I can entertain myself for hours in a fabric store.
0: (laughs) So I've only thus far been able to see a photograph of the work So I I realized that with something even maybe more three-dimensional than uh, a painting, and I I realized that paintings are very three-dimensional even when they're on a canvas is a flat surface, but paintings can be quite three-dimensional, but I imagine that uh, there's a real depth to seeing a quilt in real life uh, versus seeing just a still photograph of it. Um, one of the things I'm wondering, because I can't tell from looking at this, is this something that you stitch by hand? Do you use a machine? Um, I don't know that much about quilting, so uh, I'm gonna. I'd love it if you gave us some, you know, basic idea of what goes into making a quilt.
2: Well, traditionally, you are, you are right. Everything was sewn by hand because that was the materials that were available. So it was a very time-consuming effort, um, hence the quilting bees that women used probably as their therapy from <laughs> the challenges of the days, but also out of necessity. Uh, I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can hand pick the fabrics that I want to use, the colors that I want to use. So I'm very grateful to be in that position. Everything that I do is sewn on the machine. Um, As it is, it takes quite a while to construct a piece. People have asked how long does it take, and I really couldn't give a time estimate. You know, it starts with choosing a palette, and I work intuitively, so I don't have any templates or patterns that I use. I've discovered that I like line, and so I'll start working with line and I'll put these rough pieces up on my flannel covered uh, work wall. Then I'll start playing with the color, playing with the shapes, arranging the line. Somebody said it likened it to collage, which I guess it kind of is. And then when I'm satisfied with that design, I will literally sew two pieces together, just like Um, somebody would when they're making a garment, um, pin things together and just sew them from edge to edge. So there's little uh, quarter inch seams all the way through it, you know, pressing is all part of it. Um, And then that quilt, that top, the pieced top is laid on top of a piece of batting, which in a quilt would provide the warmth and then that is covered by a third piece of fabric on the back, just the backing. So you've got a sandwich at the top, the batting and the back. And then all those layers are quilted through. And that used to be done by hand also. And often in a quilting bee, um, different women's stitches were very identifiable. They could say, oh, that's so-and-so stitch and that's so-and-so stitch. Mine, um, I have quilted on my own machine, but I work on just a traditional household sewing machine. So these big pieces are very difficult for me to put through the small throat, as it's called. So I do um, hire somebody. I do pay somebody to do my quilting. And since my pieces are rather simple, I like to use a very simple quilting. I just use a lot of parallel lines, though often they I would prefer them to be very organic and kind of wiggly and squiggly and not as orderly as, uh, as if they were cut with a ruler or, or sewn with a ruler. So everything is hand sewn. And then that stitching, the final quilting adds another layer of texture, another um, brush mark, so to speak, on top of the fabric.
0: The, that final stitching um, is obviously its own uh, sort of way of creating a pattern or uh, an image. Um, do you, because if you've got somebody helping you with that, do you sort of lay out how you want them to stitch it? Or is that more about turning the top, middle, and bottom into a finished product?
2: I do give them um, directions as to what I would like. You know, I pick out the color thread. Um, there was one time when I I said, well, I want this part to be lighter and this part to be darker. And she was going, oh, and it's, she's more of a traditional uh, quilter. And I said, just do it this way and uh, it's my responsibility so I will take credit or blame for it depending on how it turns out. Um, She uses what's called a long arm machine and she says that the straight lines that I ask for are really more difficult to do than some of the curvy floral designs that that'll be seen on a quilt but like I say if I'm able to do it myself I'd like them to be less regular. I'm coloring outside the lines now so to speak.
0: And these are designed to be shown on a wall, is that right? These are not uh, artwork that you put on a bed.
2: It would go on a bed if nobody was going to use it. And it would keep somebody warm, but they really are intended to hang on a wall. They don't really have the durability to be thrown into a washing machine um, very often.
0: So can you talk more specifically now about um, this series? So you submitted uh, Nothing Stays the Same, which uh, according to the information I have in front of me says that it's the first in a series of compositions. Uh, this is what, like five feet by five feet. Uh, so, can you talk about how you got into this particular piece of artwork? How you chose to decide to submit this, um, and you know how the series is going?
2: This series started as one of my classes with Nancy Crow, and the workshop was entitled "Working in a Series." So the piece that I've submitted, one quadrant of it was a a piece that I produced in class. And there was one point where Nancy said, that color is not going to work. And I just thought I had reached a point in my classes with her that I had to trust myself. And I I thought, well, I'm going to put it in there and we'll just see if it works. Well, it did in everybody's mind so from that one quadrant of the piece I've submitted I added the other three quadrants and I realized that I didn't have a plan in mind but that I really enjoyed working with line parallel and horizontal lines I loved the organic um, looseness of the lines because I'm cutting with a rotary cutter which is a circular razor sharp blade I'm not cutting with scissors and so I enjoyed cutting something that was not a perfectly straight line. And as I put these shapes up on the wall, somebody watching said, Janet, that's a Tory gate. Remember you lived in Japan as a child? And I said, oh, that's surely enough, that's what it is. Um, But that was not my intention to create that. And I didn't want that label to get stuck on it. People have since looked at it. Oh, that looks like a hut. That looks like the ungated passageway from the Buddhist tradition. So the title came from, I guess, from my Tai Chi practice in a way where where change is constant. That's the only thing that we can count on. And so I was thinking that, okay, that object that I might be remembering, whether it's a a pier or a piling or one of the fences that you see holding back, sand at a beach that's all going to change Um, how I remember it is going to change and then as I work through the series those pieces are each going to change whether it's in the color the arrangement of the lines the shapes that result from the placement of the lines and then I thought wow nothing stays the same the time of the shutdown when I was working on the on piece number five was a perfect example how nothing stays the same. If we're going to survive, we have to figure out how to change with whatever is put upon us. So it seemed like the um, perfect kind of entry to go with the times. How many pieces
0: are there now in this series?
2: Well, I did have a health problem that kind of slowed me down, and I have just gotten number five finished. Um, But in the back of my mind, number six is percolating. Um, I think I'm going to work with very subdued colors. So I'm still kind of playing with that because I've been using things that are pretty brilliant and uh, very attention-getting. So I want to play with that palette a little bit. And I don't want it to put people to sleep. (laughs) It might be calming, but I'm just uh, still working with what I hope to come out of it. Do you have an idea of
0: how many there will be in this series? or do you just take them one at a time?
2: Really just take them one at a time. I went back and looked through some old files, I mean, actual paper files that I had, and I picked up a picture from 1970. And it was, oh, I'm still working with that image. It has appealed to me for that long with the vertical and the horizontal sticks or horizontal lines. So I could see this series going, but also changing beyond the sort of hut-like shape that I have right now, the Tori-like shape that I have. And I'm just real curious to see where it might go.
0: Is this the first series that you've done or have you done other series of quilts?
2: This is the first series I've done. And I realized once I found my subject, those horizontal and parallel lines, I realized how drawn I was to that and how long that very, very simple shape um, I could work with it. I mean, I'll be driving along and go, oh, there's something I got to take a picture of just to add to that, that memory and, um, see where it goes. I mean, something as simple as a picket fence will catch my attention.
0: Can you elaborate a little bit more? I was going to ask, how, how do you get inspiration, you know, subject matter, uh, ideas for, for, for a quilt? So, sounds like, um, you see something. Do you take pictures? Do you ever collage in paper or anything to get the idea going? Or is it the working in the fabric is where it's all born?
2: It really is the working in the fabric. Occasionally, I'll sketch something. Um, there was one, I, you know, I was wrong. I did work start working in another series called Sticks and Stripes. I apologize about that. And that just started from a little picket fence image, um, boardwalk over the dunes. And then the, the stripes of a corn snake. And I was trying to figure out how to marry those two images together. And that did take some sketching because I didn't want it to be too complicated. But I did want to capture both those stripes and the shape of the railing of the boardwalk. But usually I just have to start playing with the fabric. Um, Nancy, or my teacher, will often have us work in black and white just to you know, figure out the basic structure or something. But I kind of just jump right into color and start working with it that way. And that's been a change for me. It's not like crumpling up a piece of paper that I've made a mistake on. You know, here it's a, a piece of fabric and that's, that's quite dear to me.
0: <laughs> do you go to fabric stores? You said that you um, you could get lost in a fabric store for, for hours. But do you also use found uh, material? Do you ever recycle old clothing, that kind of stuff, into your quilts as people used to do in the past?
2: You know, at this point, I am not. But there's so much fabric that I absolutely love, like in clothing that I don't wear anymore, that I just haven't been able to get rid of the clothing because I like the fabric. And I can see that becoming an element in my art. I think right now I'm, I'm still working on learning um, value in color and to try to make that work before I add the element of print or any kind of uh, other texture. So I feel like I'm at a very uh, simple and almost pure level right now. Um, But my basic nature is to recycle and reuse so I can see myself moving into that.
0: Do you still make other clothing? Do you do any other sewing that's not quilting?
2: Oh, well, mostly I do some patching, and <laughs> repairing of things, but it, it's kind of crazy, especially at this time. We don't have to dress up really to go anywhere. And uh, now that I'm not teaching, I don't need those professional kinds of clothes. Well, I sewed masks. I sewed hundreds of masks when the first shutdown first came. So I was able to use a lot of my beautiful prints then and then just give them away so people could walk around looking beautiful.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself, your your art, so this particular piece, anything you want people to know?
2: Um, I think just a lot of it just came from paying attention. And that's just been a huge benefit from my life, the things that I've noticed. And I encourage everybody to do that.
0: Well, thank you so much both for the beautiful artwork. It's very inspirational, but also for taking the time to talk to us and for having submitted to the project. Uh, we're excited for a time when we can host people back in the building and we could get this up on the wall at the Cogar Center so people can come see it in person. Obviously, when we figure that out, we'll share with everyone and, and uh, we look forward to meeting you in person and seeing this art firsthand.
2: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Jesse's Quails submitted a four minute animated film titled Old Man Planet to the 1593 Project. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the Cogar Center Arts Roundup let's start by talking about how you got into this style of filmmaking and what inspired you to start producing films.
3: So, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, um, I got interested in my interest started in filmmaking first, uh, at a young age when I was like in fourth grade. And so I just started doing a lot of different storyboarding on um, writing and storytelling and whatnot. And then eventually, on. Um, I started getting interested in video editing and I did a lot of uh, video editing on the side. It's for fun, Um, just just for the fun of it and and whatnot on nothing to be submitted or anything like that. And then around, towards the end of of my middle school years, I uh, got interested into the uh, Governor's School of Arts and Humanities where they offered uh, two separate summer programs, one for uh, eighth graders and then freshmen. Um, I, I went to both for the animation uh, classes that they were offering there. And then I got accepted for the high school program for junior and senior year, where um, through, through, throughout that time, I got more interested in animation and filmmaking at the same time. And then eventually I just continued on from there doing uh, animation, filmmaking, writing uh, in general, and then also uh, editing.
0: Do you have a favorite part of the filmmaking process uh, or, because in in the professional world, all of those things are are different sort of full-time jobs for a lot of people. Um, I realize that as you're making um, shorter pieces and you're doing it all yourself, but do you have Mm -hmm. a long-term goal of of what what part of filmmaking you'd like to really focus on?
3: Yes, so definitely uh, editing. Definitely editing is my strongest point. I have a lot of fun doing that. It's my favorite part. But like in terms of like the future down the line for careers, mostly uh, directing and also writing screenplays along with editing. And then any kind of animation I can work on. Most, mostly 2D and stop motion. I haven't uh, started learning 3D animation yet. As of now, anyway.
0: You submitted a piece called Old Man Planet to the Cover Center's 1593 project. Um, It's a four-minute piece that you wrote the script for. Um, You you directed it. You did the bulk of the animation. You did the editing. Um, Can you describe the film to us just briefly uh, and, and talk about what you know, what is, that st- what is the style in your head? Like, it- it's animation, but um, I'd love to hear more about the process that went into making that particular piece.
3: Yeah, so there was a lot going into uh, Old Man Planet in terms of like coming up with the idea to the concept, writing, and then planning everything out because it was an absolute nightmare trying to get all the pieces together on top of actually animating. So it pretty much started off with the idea of what if I owned my own planet and could control the weather whenever I wanted to because I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoy the rain a lot and reading while it's uh, pouring rain outside on my porch. So that's included in the uh, short film Then I developed that into this very uh, science fiction world uh, focused on this uh, old man who's basically kind of mysterious you get you get bits and pieces of what of who who he is or what he once was or what exactly is going on but you're basically told what you needed and then the rest of it you can like uh, it's left it's it, it's left ambiguous you're not told all the answers or anything in terms of the story but you're basically given enough what's there in terms of uh, so he lives alone on his planet he could control the weather and he is wanted for something basically um so that's pretty much the story of the short of it um and I developed this during my senior year of animation class, where we eventually had to pitch ideas for possible concentration final films, and Old Man Planet was the final selection I went with. And the in terms of animation and the style of it, uh, my inspiration came from uh, from both Blade Runner films in terms of the overall style and science fiction atmosphere to those films, and then the uh, the animation piece the the hare and the bear, which was a short Christmas commercial. Um, I can't remember the animator who worked on it, but basically the animation was cut out 2D drawings, pasted and on a stop motion set and shot like that, which was what I did for Old Man Planet for certain shots where it was a 2D cutout, fully animated, uh, frame by frame shot on a 3D set. So that was the main basis of it. And then in terms of overall production, of course, I had to come up with the storyboards, the style frames to have how it would look. And then of course, uh, writing, the actual, writing the actual screenplay for the story and what would be said. I had to keep, and it was mostly to be kept simple uh, because a five-minute anim, five animation that looks good um, in terms of every detail really uh, fixed tuned in and uh, finalized is a lot of work for one semester and for one student to do everything which is basically what we had to do we were responsible for doing everything about it so I had to uh, uh, order or make all of the miniatures that were in that house and that speeder that's in in the film that red speeder I had to build make that myself and that house I had to construct with our uh, sculpting department um, so there was a lot of stuff going on there. And of course, uh, casting actors, one of them was my teacher, English teacher and the other was a drama student. Um, and the, really the hardest part about it was just trying to multitask between building those 3D sets and then also having to animate at the same time because animation takes a lot of time uh, just from planning it out, drawing it out, Making sure the motion and movements are correct and uh, look good, and then also scanning every single piece of frame, cutting them out as need be, coloring them, scanning them, cleaning them, cleaning them up, and then finalizing, and then of course really putting it all together. Because I, when it came to editing this, I only had two weeks to edit the full thing, and it was a absolute monster, especially with uh, the effects I had to use because some events. Uh, it was a lot of work trying to really fix and polish. And uh, yeah, that's basically it. Um, and with Old Man Planet, I'm very, in well, as of right now, I, I plan on writing a feature screenplay for it moving forward uh, as a possibility.
0: I have a, cu- a couple of questions about the, about the film and about the process for the film. So um, w- one thing I'm always curious is uh, how much film did you end up shooting, and then in order to edit it down to, what is it, about four minutes? Yes, so originally it was planned
3: out to be five minutes, but because of time constraints and how much I was able to do, I had to cut out certain shots and certain scenes. Like there was a, uh, there was going to be a shot, a longer scene of of the old man driving through the planets with the actual uh, speeder model, like making a turn, and you see more of basically the graveyard of of different ships um so that was one thing um and so mostly i shot what i needed and got it down so there wasn't uh in terms of cutting down the runtime it wasn't uh, later on when it came to the editing process because the editing process i just had to make sure, make sure uh, it all flowed together really nicely. So there wasn't that much cutting down uh, in the editing process. It was mostly in the planning stage where they cut out some stuff in order to save time and actually have a
0: finished film. Got it. And then the, the animation, uh, the drawn animation, do you draw that uh, by hand um, on paper? Do you draw it um, by hand on a computer? Uh, how was how the stuff that looks like it's hand-drawn made? Yeah, so a
3: lot of it um, all the 2D animation is, hand, is completely hand-drawn. So most of it, originally it was supposed to be, uh, everything in the entire film was supposed to be 2D drawings on a stop-motion set in motion. So in some of those shots you can see that others are digital. So all of it is hand-drawn animation. So the ones that were on the stop-motion set, I hand-drew those. I colored those by hand, and then I pasted them onto a very uh, thick foam paper to keep it standing. And then I shot those. The other ones that look more digital, I hand drew those on paper first. Then I scanned them in, had to clean up the line work in the background and everything, and then uh, properly color them
0: digitally. Um. So this this was a project uh, you, you wrote the screenplay. Um, have you worked on some other stuff uh, since then? Like wh- wh- where are you where are you taking this film career right now? Like wh- what's your next project? Yes.
3: Yeah, so right now um, I've only managed um, mostly freelancing editing work. I've been I've been doing within the past couple months. Um, in terms of like projects, I've re- I've really only managed to to do one, and that was a animated uh, advertisement for uh, the Time for Pieces is now. Uh, they, they, they approached, the producers to that approached me to create a short animated advertisement for their new album that was going to be coming out. Well, actually, right now, I did originally have a short film, live action, planned out. It's a romance film called Checkmate that I have finalized and finished and written that I was going to shoot uh, this semester. But because of COVID and the way things are going now, I'm going to be having to do remote learning. So I can't shoot anything this semester. Um, But I am in the meantime, uh, continuing my freelance editing as best as I can. And also working with some friends of mine to work on a animated stop motion uh, sitcom series. And right now we're just trying to focus on creating animating the in the uh the series intro to get people invested in it and get an audience at the very least and get it jump started more views and more awareness for it so that way we can continue with the series
0: where are you in school
3: right now i'm in my sophomore year of college um And for this semester, my classes are just half academic and then half are part of my major, mostly in film history and then also screenwriting.
0: Um, Can you talk about uh, some of your film influences? Um, You you said you got into uh, filmmaking at a very young age. Uh, I can see the influence of the Blade Runner films on Old Man Planet, Um, but can you give us a little more personal history about Oh, open, yeah. Open to you yeah. and, and how you were inspired by film to start doing it on your own. Yeah, so
3: mostly um, one of my biggest influences at the young age anyway that got me invested was uh, Steven Spielberg because of Jurassic Park, ET, and Jaws. Um, at such a young age, but then it started changing through different influencers like Ridley Scott with Alien and, of course, the first Blade Runner. Then uh, Guillermo del Toro with his with his fantasy films, such as uh, Pan's Labyrinth and then also Pacific Rim. So those are some of like, the big influencers. And then also Stanley Kubrick in terms of uh, horror and his execution of certain things. And then Quentin Tarantino with his writing, because his writing is really amazing.
0: Do you want to follow sort of in that uh, path of writing your own film, directing it, putting together the team, um, being sort of the visionary that leads it? I mean, a lot of those influences you just uh, mentioned sort of do a lot in their films. They're they're not just a director. Um, is, is that where you w- really want to go? Is, is to continue to have your hand in the in the process from Inception yes. through?
3: Yes, pretty much. I really want to have my hand in pretty much everything involved in whatever film I might be working on. So definitely direction, the writing, everything down to every detail, um, especially the editing also, because I want things to look a certain
0: way. Where do you get your ideas, your inspiration for the script? So how, do, how does something come to you and you think, okay, so this is worth putting this amount of time in? Because as you said, um, you know, four minutes, Uh, stop motion animation film was a whole semester's worth of work Uh, if you're going to commit to an idea you might be turning over two years of your life to a project how do you know what how do you get inspired to say this is something that I would like to to devote a chunk of time to to really telling this particular story
3: I mostly make that dedication and decision like early on in the process if I'm really really invested on in this particular project because with Old Man Planet before my senior year even started, I came up with Old Man Planet in the early summer before I started my senior year and then started talking with my um my mentor about it and like trying to come up and advance these ideas. And he gave me references in addition to my own references, he gave me others uh to basically watch to get inspiration from, such as uh oh definitely uh for Old Man Planet a big inspiration was the Anime collection shorts called Memories, and one of them was called Magnetic Rose. Um, that I thought that was a really beautiful short animation that really influenced the overall look and simpli and basically simplicity of the character animation for Old Man Planet. Basically, in terms of a story or project, I try to make sure that I have my complete investment at the very beginning, moving forward.
0: I know you mentioned your work. You have this uh, feature length uh, film in mind. Um, Do you wanna shift to that longer format or do you see yourself still making uh, short films?
3: Yes, definitely plan to shift towards that longer format in order to tell a story because that's mostly, well, actually this is my plan. My plan is to continue work on whatever short film ideas I come up with within these next three years in my film major and also at the same time work on the feature screenplay of Old Man Planet and tell what exactly this, what the bigger story is of Old Man Planet and possibly get it picked up by certain studios once I graduate, because my overall goal is as soon as I graduate to begin work on my first feature, writing and directing it.
0: Well, it's good to have a vision like that. Um, Is there anything else you'd like to share with us about um, your filmmaking, about Old Man Planet? uh, Anything you think people would like to know?
3: Yeah, so for um Old Man Planet specifically it was a really rigorous process. Um it it was a lot of fun. <laughs> With Old Man Planets I kind of connected it to a separate uh idea called Prodigy 7 where I thought of a trilogy where Old Man was like the outcome of this trilogy and you would see the journey of Old Man who is named John Parr from ha- from Basically, watching what exactly happened before he got onto this planet, and what could potentially happen after.
0: Great. So you have a uh, you've got a trilogy all laid out. So maybe Old Man Planet won't be the last we see um, anytime soon.
3: Possibly. And then I also thought of thought of like going backwards, like starting off with Old Man Planet, and then uh, then telling the story of what happened before then. Um, Possibly a trilogy, maybe just two films. Um, I haven't quite figured that out yet, but mostly just just planning it out, really.
0: Well, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. It, it was really great to get to watch the piece. Uh, our, our goal is, once we're in a place where we can have people back in the building, we're going to do a um, 1593 project um, gallery showing, and mm-hmm. we'd like to get this running on a loop, uh, on a monitor in the gallery so that people can enjoy it, um, along with all the other submissions. So we we appreciate you um, responding to that uh, posting about our call for art, and we've we've been very impressed with it. And it sounds like uh, you've got a bright career in film ahead of you. So we look forward to hosting a, you know, uh, Hopefully we can have a film release here at the Cogar Center sometime um, with, with more of your stuff.
3: Nice. Yeah, that sounds great. I look forward to it when it comes around.
0: Thank you for listening to our three runners-up from the Coger Center's 1593 project. You can view all the submissions online at com. The Coger Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at CogerCenterForTheArts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit GarnetMedia.org.